0: From VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship, this is Episode 8 of Circle of Willis, where I chat with personality psychologist and open science activist Samin Vazir about the advantages and prescriptive advice of the open science movement. Hey everyone, it's Jim Cohn. This is my podcast, Circle of Willis. (laughs) I don't know why that's funny. It's funny. It strikes me as funny right this moment. For this episode, I'm talking with Samin Vizier, who I'm just going to go ahead and characterize as an activist in what is, I don't know, increasingly being called the open science movement, although it hasn't really always been about open science per se, and we don't really refer to it as the open science movement in our conversation. I think... I think I just like the sound of open science movement to, you know, the replication movement or the movement to increase the repeatability of scientific studies or whatever, something like that. And in any case, I don't want to limit our view of Samin to her advocacy of what she might call open science practices. In fact, Samin is currently an associate professor of psychology at the University of California at Davis, where she directs the Personality and Self-Knowledge Laboratory, a lab dedicated the study not only of the stability of our personality traits but also of how we know ourselves and whether we know ourselves along the way samin somehow finds time for all this other stuff too like uh like for instance she co-founded the society for the improvement of psychological science which goes by sips (laughs) that's in case you were wondering she serves as editor in chief of the journal social psychological and personality science and senior editor at Collabra, and she co-hosts her own podcast which is called The Black Goat which which sounds a little ominous to me but I don't think it's ominous and and she even writes the occasional op-ed for places like Slate magazine as well as as well as her own blog posts point is she's busy this is a busy person and uh and if the, if all that wasn't enough she's also been at the center of the national conversations that, uh, that scientists have been having about everything from open science practices like like replication, transparency, data sharing, hypothesis, pre-registration, all of that stuff. but also and and I think importantly, about the process of criticizing each other's work, about you know when when criticism crosses over into harassment and bullying, and why that line is, is sort of both super important and a lot harder to identify than many of us might think. Now, I have my own thoughts about all this, which I won't get into now, but I do want to say that I find Samin in particular to be a trustworthy conversation partner as we go through all of these growing pains. I mean, I I think it's telling in, in a good way that Samin has been on the receiving end of pretty intense criticism from all sides of these difficult conversations we've been having. I think she tries really hard to be reasonable and even charitable towards people she disagrees with. And I mean, I don't know, I think I think in our age of sort of shoot from the hip outrage, that can be a hard path to find, let alone walk. There are many things I love about Samine, but as you'll hear in a moment at or near the top of the list of her agreeable traits is that she'll be the first to tell any of you that sometimes she is wrong. So, friends and, uh, and foes and relations and other people for your edification and enjoyment, here is my conversation with Samin Vizier. So you were just saying that you, you were here at, so I just want to say again, uh, that you're the first person to actually visit my home to nice do this song. this is I think you're Interview number 26 or so, Um, and we were just talking about how you've been to UVA as a visiting scholar. Was it right after you finished your work?
1: Yeah, so it was right after my PhD, and I had gotten the job at WashU, and I deferred it for a year, Uh and I spent half the year here. Uh, working with Tim Wilson and hanging out, and eventually that led to the handbook that we edited together. Oh, Although we didn't start that while I was here. Wait a
0: second, I didn't know. But so what is this? What is this handbook? I the should know handbook about Handbook of self knowledge. Of self knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that sounds scary. Yeah. I don't. I don't. <laughs> you know, it's it was too fun, much self knowledge. It wasn't little. really
1: like a a subfield at the time and it probably still would be an exaggeration to say that it's a subfield but there were a lot of people working on things related to self-knowledge and social psych and personality psych and right. clinical and developmental and so on and so we wanted to kind of bring all of that together into one place yeah yeah um, but we didn't do that until after yeah that when I was here we mostly just hung out I was uh, dog sitting and house sitting um, Bobby Spellman's oh yeah dog and so I would go to the dog park and see Tim Wilson there and we'd hang out <laughs> oh, there. about that
0: time me and Bobby would have had a party we had a party here together where we uh, brought uh, all the dogs and oh everything. yeah yeah yeah. Was, so she was away that days. semester,
1: so I was staying in her apartment and Oh yeah, I know exactly where Mickey, that is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So uh uh yeah, John Height comes down still sometimes oh, yeah. and stays in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. I just the topic of John Height apparently makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah. That's just enough. That's all I need. <laughs> Wow. So self-knowledge. And that's that's really a big part of your domain of interest in in personality, right?
1: Yeah. So it started out as more of a methodological question of like how accurate are self-reports? When should we trust self-reports and when shouldn't we? That's Tim's whole thing
0: from decades. right, Right,
1: right and then but i i came at it from a totally different angle i didn't come at it from like a cognitive like what's going on people's heads angle i came at it from a practical like the first paper i ever wrote as a grad student we had self-reports of our participants but we also had peer reports from their friends Uh and for some incidental reason we decided to use the peer reports in writing up the paper and that was our measure of personality and the reviewers were very upset about this and they said clearly the best measure of personality is a person's self-report otherwise the whole field of personality seriously needs to rethink itself and
0: you thought yeah the (laughs) whole field (laughs) of personality needs to rethink itself
1: (laughs) i thought this is an empirical question like why Uh, would someone just state this totally an empirical question so then i became obsessed with like thinking about yeah i still don't know who that reviewer was but i want to thank them because they like launched me in a totally different direction that's the
0: right attitude
1: but so then i did a lot of like more methodological work on like for what constructs are self reports a good measure versus not and um and then it, i realized it's actually a pretty deep theoretical question like what yeah. do people know about themselves and what don't they and that's how i got turned onto tims work and all the social cognition work on you know what the mental processes are that people use to form a self-perception and oh man you know on.
0: we've gotten we've started getting into this because it's obvious but you don't think about it until you think about it yeah. which is that self is an ongoing process that's mm-hmm. unfolding in time it's mm-hmm. not a It's not a thing that you pull out of your brain and weigh and bounce like a basketball.
1: Well, it's funny. My mom is a therapist and I think sometimes it drives her a little bit nuts that I'm like a personality psychologist who reduces people to like five numbers Right. (laughs) because in her mind, like she, she doesn't believe that we even have one self. It's like you have different parts of yourselves. Right. So to reduce that, to, to answer even a personality questionnaire about your one self, I think is like doesn't it doesn't make any her. sense yeah, yeah. but but do you, and do
0: you buy the whole
1: michelle michelle walter, walter
0: michelle? michelle the whole you know because i mean i've thought about this right mm-hmm. because i like i i'm classically if you take my numbers mm-hmm. i'm like in above the 90th percentile in extroversion yeah. i love to well, be, around be a fun people. conversation
1: because i'm about 10th percentile <laughs> <laughs> uh so i love but but here's yeah. the
0: thing i love being like my platonic ideal mm-hmm. of a social situation is the National mall on in washington mm-hmm. d c mm-hmm. on the Fourth of July, mm-hmm. right, with just yeah. people everywhere, yeah, and fireworks
1: <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
0: but if but if it's a party or something, or especially if it's like yeah. a dance party yeah it just suddenly I'm an introvert.
1: Yeah. Like I want to so be off in the corner. That's salient to you. Like the few situations where you're not extroverted are really salient to you. Right. But so you're still like, you're still, I'm sure the vast I'm majority still, of the time if we aggregate across all the situations and over time you would be I in the would, 90th percentile. Even if with observational methods. And I think there's something to... so. I'm not sure I believe the fundamental attribution error is as robust as people say it is, but one Uh thing that I think is really robust is that we can't see the forest for the trees when it comes to ourselves. We see these fluctuations and they feel like wild fluctuations. We don't see the stable average difference between us and other people. So like my favorite example of that is my college boyfriend was your stereotypical computer science major, like pretty introverted. (laughs) Uh, We'll leave that stereotype, what (laughs) what that means precisely. We'll leave that to people's imagination. He's definitely very, like more introverted than me. Let's put it that way. Okay. And um, I remember one year after we were still friends after we dated and he read something in time magazine about ambiverts or whatever like yeah. know, people who are sometimes introverted and sometimes extroverted right. right and he came to me and he said samin i get it like sometimes i'm introverted and sometimes i'm extroverted and i said no nate sometimes you're really really introverted and sometimes you're introverted <laughs> <laughs> but ah, for him that right. feels like the whole spectrum right yeah. but you don't see that like your range is still a subset of the whole and even if you do occupy the whole range you still have a part of that range where you're almost always in that kind of either high or low, and that makes you different from other people. Like we really differ in our average states, even though we fluctuate yeah. around those. And I think actually, Will Fleeson, to me, the person situation debate is over because Will Fleeson resolved it. Will Fleeson. Yeah, so I haven't read has, that shit. So he kind of comes from the social cognitive approach to personality, but he reconciled it with traits by showing that people, if you, if I measure your extroversion state over and over again, so maybe yeah. I use experience sampling or yeah. a behavioral or observation. Yeah, my friends. Yeah, but I. Re- repeatedly measure your state not your trait but your state like in uh-huh. the last hour how extroverted were you or how much did uh-huh. you talk or whatever and i can create <laughs> a density distribution for each person there are big mean differences so your average really? state would be much higher than mine but both of us would occupy the full spectrum especially on extroversion partly because of situational demands right yeah. so if i'm going to teach i can't be at the bottom of the spectrum on extroversion in that hour in that, that i'm teaching right, yeah. right and if and even someone who's super extroverted if you go to a lecture and sit in the audience you can't be super extroverted in that context Yes. So the, so because we we have to occupy everyone on the spectrum at some oh, point, that we sounds we all really... vary a lot. So
0: is part of the idea that, that certain situations have yeah. personality characteristics?
1: Yeah. So situations afford different, you know yes. um, levels of personality states or or some situations afford any level right and then your personality you see individual differences shine through for those situations what, what maybe a social psychologist would call a weak situation as opposed yeah. to a strong situation yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah this is great this yeah, is so, this is real social psychology yeah, yeah so he opened up this i mean the thing.
1: this i recently co-edited situations a special issue how yeah. about that yeah so and it's Of course, interaction too, right? So some there's huge main effects of situations, but then there's the odd person who doesn't respond to the situation the same way that everyone else does. Um and that's interesting too, right? So there's person by situation interactions.
0: Do you know about generalizability theory?
1: Yeah, vaguely. Mm -hmm. It's
0: all about variance accounted for Mm -hmm. and reliability of one thing across other things, right? Right, right, So so you just don't worry about questions of significant differences or significant and one of the things that it has in it it has different it builds in different intraclass correlations mm-hmm. one thing you can do with generalizability theory is get an estimate for let's say someone's extraversion score mm-hmm. in a, a reliability estimate that's absolute, mm-hmm. right, yeah. and you would expect that to be relatively low, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But the other thing that i love that I really love is that it gives you a relative reliability score mm-hmm. relative to other people in the data set oh, interesting. and so what you very often see what we saw we published one st- one paper where we showed that with eEG symmetry mm-hmm. uh the the absolute reliabilities are pretty low mm-hmm. across situations, so it looks like you know, the, the situation is, but if you look at the relative reliabilities, what it Mm -hmm. looks like is the distribution shifts up and down, Mm -hmm. but, but stays relatively stable. The rank ordering stability is really interesting.
1: Yeah. I think it's really fascinating to look at the, uh, you can like flip a data set, transpose it, and then you see things that you didn't see right. when you we were looking at it the other way. I know. In personality psych, we like to do that a lot. So we have the nomothetic approach and then the ideographic. Yeah. We flip it and we do profile stuff. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. get totally different results. Yeah. That was,
0: yeah. The, I think when we were coming of age in, in some, some ways as grad students, that was, you know, was sort of when, when we're also, we have like linear mixed modeling mm-hmm. emerging and all mm-hmm. of these kinds of ways yeah. to look at our data sets yeah. that really, really expanded yeah. the horizon.
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing that might take away from having these like data sets with you know, repeated intensive within-person measures and things like that, sometimes the descriptive stats are the most fascinating. Like just looking at across different constructs, what proportion of the variance is within-person versus yeah. between-person and how constructs differ oh, yeah. on that. So some constructs, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's mostly within-person and then sometimes you'll see constructs where there's very little within-person yep. variance. Yep. And that in itself, you could write a whole paper just on yep, that. But... Ab- well, I did. Yeah, the cool.
0: G-, G theory gave me the opportunity yeah. to just write in terms of variance components nice. uh, yeah. instead of significant differences between yeah. means. Yeah. And that was awesome. Yeah. Can't do it very often. Yeah, it's tough. Reviewers, you know, it's it's. I mean, I don't want to blame. I don't want to be one of those guys. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, reviewers don't get how yeah. awesome I right, am. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But I do wish that that things like G three. I were
1: think more. I think that there's starting to be more flexibility in how people think about the, the papers. Don't have to fit exactly the old prototype anymore.
0: Is that would you say that that's one of the one of the side effects of I don't know what to call it. So here's what we're going to get into, <laughs> right. of the movement. Can yeah. I call it that? The sure. movement that, I'm fine with that. The, and can I refer to you as an activist? Or is that is that too, is that overstating it?
1: I'm fine with that. Okay. I don't so, know if it's accurate, but I, I, it, I doesn't, it doesn't either. offend me. I just want to
0: say something. I want to be able to put a marker somewhere yeah, yeah. so that we don't have to, yeah. you know, right. circumlocute everything. Mm-hmm. But the but is the, do you think one of the the effects of the 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 movement to increase the repeatability of our science is expanding our data analytic options.
1: I think that's one of the big debates, right? So I think some people perceive the movement as trying to restrict everybody into this one mold of like we have to think of things a, s- a certain way and emphasize replicability over everything else and so on. But I I don't know. I mean, it's an empirical question. It'll be interesting to look at the meta science on whether the kinds of articles that are being published whether there's a broader range whether there's more variance in the types of articles being published post movement yeah. compared to pre my subjective anecdotal impression is, yeah, I think, I think we're seeing more uh, papers with mixed results with <clears throat> null results, things like that. That wasn't possible before. More papers that don't use null hypothesis and testing at all. Um, papers that are more explicitly exploratory or descriptive. Yeah. Um, so I think it is expanding the like kinds of papers people are willing to to find, to, I think there are the papers that people had inside of them, but didn't think they could get published, yeah. and now they're willing to try. And more reviewers and editors are willing to accept papers that don't fit the old mold. Yeah, maybe that's too idealistic, but
0: well, I mean, like I said, you'll we'll we'll will have to wait and see. Yeah. I mean, I I've always been Lee Seacrest. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my old methods mentor. Yeah. So my my minor was in methodology yeah. and measurement with yeah. an emphasis on measurement. Yeah. And I really I'm still sort of obsessed with reliability and, mm-hmm. and these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I my my own feeling is uh, our our measures is the is the root of yeah. maybe the root of our problem. Yeah. But but I mean that's a whole other. I don't want to mm-hmm. hijack the conversation in that direction. But he used to call me a a, a contrarian. It used to drive him crazy because yeah. every time he would come out with some recommendation methodologically. It's true. I kind of suddenly wanted to do the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's... And I think there's there's some heuristic value in that in terms yeah. of moving things forward because you can't violate the principles.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think a lot of academics, a lot of successful academics have that yeah. personality trait. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: weird. I mm. don't know what that's about. Yeah. So I want to do... Suddenly, I want to do like N of 1 studies yeah, all yeah, the time. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Oh, I yeah.
1: think I think expanding the range of things that we consider scientific contributions is would be a great outcome yeah. if that if that was one of the side effects of this movement.
0: So speaking of the movement, yeah. um you're uh, uh I was trying to, I mean you're you're like uh like a superhero. <laughs> can I, I say that? I, I I yeah, I can say that. You've had tequila already. <laughs> yeah. The the you're 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 one of the the like key Figures, almost, I would say, I mean, I'm going to say literally a kind of a political figure in all of this. I mean, you're president of SIPS, the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science, right? I got it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so you're, you're the president right now. Uh,
1: yeah, chair of the executive committee, whatever. Chair of is. the executive but, so committee. So it rotates. The executive committee selects a new chair every year. So I'm okay. the chair this year and then right. it'll be someone else next yeah, year. Yeah,
0: well, I, to me, that's the president. Okay. And you <laughs> probably can command the armed forces as yeah, well. Right. Uh, whoever, whoever those, those people are, but I've got this list here. Like you're, you're editor in chief of SPPS, social personality, social psychological and personality. Okay. Sorry. I can't,
1: you got the acronym, right? Which is already like, you know, better than a lot of people. Really? Yeah. Well, SPSS, SPSP, SPPS. Yeah. Okay. It's hard to keep them straight.
0: You've got. You're you're doing. I can't remember exactly what your role is with Collabra. Uh, senior editor. Senior editor with Collabra. I don't know what. Okay, you're you're <laughs> you're current chair of the executive committee. You're president of SIPS. You've now got this podcast, yeah. The Black Goat, yeah. uh, and, which you've been doing now for what a year?
1: No, just since February.
0: Just since February. Yeah jeez, you guys move fast. You guys are efficient <laughs> uh, and organized.
1: We're not perfectionists. Let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good.
0: And you run a blog. Once in a while. And you're pretty, at least you used to be. I mean, I don't <laughs> yeah. know. You're pretty active on social media and things. Yeah. I mean, I don't know because, I mean, this is one of the things maybe we'll, we'll touch on uh, about, I would say last March or February even, I just bugged out. Yeah. I, I pulled the shoot and bugged out. I'm yeah. not, I don't interact with any of those groups anymore because oh, yeah. I couldn't, I, I, there was one too many nights of lost sleep yeah. worrying about whether tone was a thing yeah, or no. whether I was completely crazy or, you know, what? Ever. Yeah.
1: I, it's a really interesting thing. Uh, about trying to figure out like when should you try to have thicker skin versus when should you just disconnect and be like, I, I can't, I don't have thick enough skin for this. I'm just going to yeah. like show myself out. Yeah. Um, because sometimes, you know, I worry about like, so when I started a blog, I gave myself permission to not respond to comments if I don't want to not, I don't have to engage with every critic or whatever. Otherwise I would never have started the yeah. blog. Not because there are that many responses, but just in my mind, I imagined what if this happens and this happens. And I was like, okay, well just because I, put my blog up doesn't mean I have to engage with every response to it or whatever, but then that's an easy way to just avoid negative feedback or criticism. So I don't want to be that person either. Thank God for that. I don't want
0: criticism,
1: but finding that balance, right? Like I want to leave myself open to criticism and I want to listen to it. But then when I feel like the criticism is in bad faith or I just, or other shit is going on in my life and I I don't have the mental resources or whatever to deal with it, I want to give myself permission not to, but I don't know how that looks. If people think I'm running away or, you know, like people don't, it's, you know, you don't always, it's hard. It's hard. People don't know. I don't know if, if people take into account the fact that that there's a human being behind this. And so sometimes I'm, I'm not going to have thick enough skin to deal with it. Or sometimes there's other stuff going on in my life that's going to make it harder to deal with it. But if, if I use that as an excuse not to engage at all, then I would just never engage. So, in my mind, I gave myself permission to say, "Okay, look, this might look bad, and it might sometimes look like I'm a coward, but I'm going to let myself put some stuff out there and then walk away and let the, you just know just let the world fall where they may go or crazy, yeah, yeah." And I do the same with the online, the Facebook forums and stuff. Is like sometimes I'll chime in, and then sometimes I'll chime in and then leave and not look at what happens afterwards because yeah. you know I'm you know I need a little bit of space or whatever.
0: You know the the main thing that I worry about. And you know it's funny uh, when, when you, you were, we were talking about what this podcast is about, and if it was ever about anything in the early days, I sort of had this fantasy that I would get every guest on every side of some debate mm-hmm. to say something inappropriate, yeah. and just let the world deal with it. Mm. Right? Just that's let why the you world... were so eager to give me a shout out. To yeah, feel that's it. right. <laughs> I want to see something happen. But the the uh, I don't really think that's true. But I but I do feel. Like the, the outrage machine is a little too, is a little out of control. Yeah. You know, the, the thing about being at a bar and this is, this is the canonical,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, you know, example. Yeah. Although Sanjay, uh, took me to task about this one time and I'll let me tell you about that in a sec, but that, mm-hmm. you know, you go to the conference, you sit at the bar
1: you and say what you really, you think. say what you really think.
0: Yeah. And sometimes you're kind of a dick or, (laughs) or, you know, you just get it wrong or you use an inappropriate analogy or whatever, because you're just, because the thing is when, when you're on the fly, Mm -hmm. you're sort of groping for the right thing and you don't really know what it is yet. Yeah. And, and so you're going to do some wrong things, much like you'll have a paper that has an incorrect finding or something. Yeah. yeah. No, I've stepped in a few times. But the hammer comes down. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think, you know, I don't know, this was maybe too much faith in my fellow human beings, but I think that if you're willing to say, oh yeah, sorry, my bad, I shouldn't have gone there. And I've, I've done that one time I made a terrible analogy and people called me on it and I I was like, yep, you're right. That was insensitive. Yeah. 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 So what are you going to do? I hope that, you know, that people are understanding if you react non-defensively, I think that's the key. Yeah, And so far from what I've seen, I think people will back off if you 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 know
0: john gottman has this great view of fighting that's Mm -hmm. evolved over the years because you know i i did my early work with him Mm -hmm. for a long time i ran his labs uh, up in seattle as a lab coordinator and i've gotten to know him pretty well you know in the early days it was all about sort of identifying how people fight Mm -hmm. and trying to get them to avoid certain behaviors Uh and it didn't work out so well. Yeah. You know, in terms of, in terms of, it, it worked out beautifully in terms of predicting outcomes. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause you could pretty, but you can flag the change. people that are doomed. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of intervention, right. it's hard to change. Uh, he's really come to believe that shitty behavior is on the menu whether you like mm-hmm. it or not. Right. So the key thing is sort of, as you're saying, is how you recover from mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, I'm still working on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. All, yeah. Aren't all of us? Yeah. All yeah. of us are working on that. Yeah. Because uh, it's really hard. You get your feelings hurt or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, how do you deal with it? Yeah, Or you just get your back up about what, you know, g- mm-hmm. God knows what it is. Oh, wait, the point is, it's always going to be something. Right, right. Right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that also face-to-face interaction is really important for that. Because it can be so easy to for things to escalate online or from a distance but then you actually meet the person in person and I mean my favorite example of that recently was Daniel Lockins and I are on opposite sides of this point oh oh five. Yes I thing. read that I'm but a lurker in yeah, all of these yeah. debates now, and then we like the, the day after all that hit and we you know both were pretty clear about our positions online we took a nine hour train ride together to a conference and it was great and, and, and I don't think in that particular case that it would have gotten ugly if we hadn't had that face-to-face time but the face-to-face time he could have yeah um
0: he's not i'm gonna go ahead and say this he's gonna listen to this someday maybe (laughs) that's a terrible assumption (laughs) but but he's not great online i would give him that feedback i would if you were right right here i'd say Uh that that he stumbles in ways online that are that that bum me out because it's unnecessary given Mm -hmm. what he's really like
1: yeah in my experience he also exemplifies this like being able to say, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Or, I shouldn't have said yeah, that. I shouldn't have gone there. Maybe. Which, you know, but then you could say, okay, but after a few trials and errors, yeah, you should cut it out. Change. But I think most people are way more interesting to talk to face-to-face totally. than on Twitter. And so I think it's important if possible. And this is, you know, there's a, a lot of talk about like how much how much inefficiency there is in like you know with climate change and everything like flying to conferences is not the way to go and the future is online and i have to admit i'm ambivalent about that because i think actually being face to face in the same room has a lot of value and i oh, know that that means that's agree. a huge burden on people without resources and it's a burden on the environment and so on i just yeah, i don't know yeah. what the solution is but we need face to face time well too. i mean frankly
0: that's the that's a big motivator for what we're doing right now you know sanjay um, i you know there there was some facebook <laughs> interminable facebook exchange yeah. but this is an al- also an illustration of how they can be helpful uh you know i was reminiscing and i was in the warm glow of these wonderful times i've been at conferences talking with senior colleagues mm-hmm. about times we couldn't replicate a thing mm-hmm. and so it really helped me you know and he's like well you know you'd be for you but a lot of people didn't have access to that conversation yeah. so i was like huh that's de- yeah, yeah shit yeah I didn't think Yeah,
1: of that. I mean it's interesting. I feel like I'm being a, a, like apologist for face to face interactions and so on, but at the same time, I think a lot of people shit on social media, but it has so many positive. Like that's yeah. a great example of like if it's, if you it's, walked it's, away from that conversation and then tweeted like, hey guys, a lot of people can't replicate this effect. That would have a lot of positive value for right. people, and especially for people who are generally at a disadvantage. Yes. So I the needle love to social thread media. there is yeah. that somebody's
0: research? You're talking about right. somebody's research. No, I know,
1: I know. Yeah. So. I have a complicated relationship with criticizing specific bodies of literature. I tend not to do it myself. And then I feel guilty that I benefit from the people who do call it out. Then I don't have to do it. And, you know, so I think, I think we need to find a way to be able to express skepticism about a line of research without it yeah, I think it's complicated. We haven't figured that sometimes out. Sometimes I
0: wonder if my view of this, sort of at the at the bird's eye mm-hmm. level, is a little bit different from a lot of my friends and colleagues in social psych, because I've been doing psychophysiology for a mm-hmm. long time. And the Society for Psychophysiological Research, SPR, I don't know mm-hmm. how much you know about it. Not much. But it's been around for more than 50 years now. Yeah. It's It was the first psychophys conference mm-hmm. uh, and and journal. Mm-hmm. And it's been... Deeply methodological from the Mm -hmm, very beginning, mm -hmm, and a lot of these growing pains, I think, SPR as a society went through a long time ago. That's
1: interesting because I think a lot of personality psychologists would say the same thing about their area. That interesting. We like our conferences are like well, they've now gone down to like maybe twenty five percent is factor analysis. It used to be right, right. So it's always been a very measurement oriented and like yeah, methodologically oriented field. Yeah, and so I think that. Well, that, I say that
0: in part because there, I've seen so much open criticism of each other's mm-hmm. work at these conferences. Is that, is that the sort of thing that you see in personality psych all these years?
1: Yeah. Certainly there aren't sacred cows, I would say, in personality psych. like yeah. There's nobody that you can't criticize. There's nobody who's like such a hero that, which is something I feel sometimes in social psych. And I I know it's a little dangerous as a personality psychologist to criticize social psych. I love social psych. I think there's many things that social psych does better than personality. So I yeah. don't want to sound like I'm, I think that personality doesn't have any flaws. But one of the things I do like about personality psych is that I can disagree with the biggest names in the field or my mentors or whoever, and it's all in good fun and people kind of relish the debate yeah. Um, and there aren't, it doesn't become personal. So that, you know, there's camps of like five factors versus six factors or yeah, traits right, versus right, non traits right. or, or single know. factor even. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and there's the friendships don't always fall along the same lines as the intellectual positions. Yeah. And so that makes things a lot easier. Yeah. That's
0: nice. Yeah. That's sort of idyllic in yeah. a way Yeah. that I remember coming out with a book chapter where I severely criticized the whole research tradition of frontally EGA symmetry, because I've been mm-hmm. doing it as a graduate mm-hmm. student and it was a pain in the ass. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, so much of the time I couldn't make anything happen yeah. and I couldn't figure out what was going on. Yeah. I was doing everything right. Yeah. And then sometimes poof, there it is, yeah. you see it. And yeah. so I, it was really a mystery and I was very frustrated and I felt like my career was doomed. Yeah. So I wrote this thing and Richie Davidson, who's like invented it, uh-huh. right.
1: Invited me to be his postdoc. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, that's a sign of a really healthy field, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, so okay, so can I just bring up some of the the prescriptive advice of the movement? Sure. Can we go through some of this stuff? Sure, yeah. Because I want you to hear my confessions. Okay. And, and <laughs> I'm going to the top. So one of the big debates that's come up is direct versus what's it's been called sort of conceptual mm-hmm. replication.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How would you characterize that that debate? Could you characterize that for me briefly? Um,
1: so, like in one or two sentences, I would say <laughs> the the various positions are one that conceptual applications are enough. Because, and they're better than direct replications because you have the chance of learning something new and you add to the generalizability of the phenomenon. Um, and the other view is that, no, we need direct replications because when a conceptual replication fails, there's a lot of ambiguity. And so right. if we only do conceptual replications, the original finding can never be falsified if it turns out to be a false positive because there's always alternative explanations for why the conceptual replication failed that are very yeah. plausible. Too many
0: what, re- re- researcher degrees of freedom Well, and in not the even expli- in the post-hoc yeah, explanation.
1: Yeah, and too many Legitimate possible reasons, yeah, yeah, right. So, if you extend it, you don't know if it failed because of the extension or because the core phenomenon isn't reliable, yeah. Um, but you know, the easy solution is to build in a direct replication and an extension and then kind of like the same idea behind a manipulation check, right? If it yep. fails, you want to know, was it because I didn't manipulate the independent variable, which is still important to know that still says something about the original finding. If yeah. the manipulation check fails that you should wonder yep. why it worked in the other one or did it really work in the other right. one? Right. Um, and the same goes for direct and conceptual application that if, if the conceptual application fails, you should want to know, is it because the, the direct part of it wasn't robust or is it because extension part of it
0: wasn't uh, funny two responses to that 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 i've had over the years that it's come up as a as an uh conversation one is that in practice i've been doing that for a long time and i think a lot of people Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. which is funny because theoretically i've always said don't bother with the direct replication Mm -hmm. so you know i'm saying one thing with my mouth and doing another thing yeah, with my that's feet interesting, yeah. and i've been doing that for like for example you know i when when the uh, and again i am not intending to pick on anybody right. but you know the the glucose mm-hmm. uh dip following uh the baumeister ego depletion, ego depletion yeah. finding when that first came out i was thunderstruck mm. i was like oh my god it's like we have a currency yeah. to deal with for yeah. for cognition yeah. and that's just such an advance yeah. So I wanted to do some of that and I wanted to manipulate it in different ways Mm -hmm. uh, using uh, social presence and things like that. But I couldn't, you know, I'm going to say it, I couldn't replicate it. I just couldn't. And I tried a lot of times and I contacted people and I tried to work it out because I was absolutely, I was seriously distressed. Yeah by that, yeah. but I but I intuited that I wanted to just see if I could do it right. first before I'd start moving yeah, it around. Yeah. Right?
1: I think you're probably right that a lot of people were doing that, but it wasn't getting out. It wasn't
0: getting out into yeah. the world, yeah. unless we were having conversations and, like this at the bar at conferences. And I
1: think even when it was, it wasn't leading people to change their minds about the original phenomenon a lot of times. like yeah. It was still like people were dodging the conclusion that maybe the phenomenon was a false positive or wasn't robust. And again, like I think we should be conservative and in jumping to that conclusion it should take a lot for us to reverse our, our view on something like thinking about it from a Bayesian perspective like if totally. we have a strong prior if we have strong evidence to begin with then one failed replication shouldn't be enough to reverse that but it should be possible and I think the situation we were in before was that there wasn't a mechanism for the consensus in the field to change a lab could change their mind and say yeah I'm not going to try to build on that because I've tried to replicate it and it doesn't work and that might spread to a few other labs but I don't know of cases where it spread to the field and the field was like oh yeah yeah no let's not go down that road that turns out not to be fruitful yeah um, so I think what many of us who want to promote more direct replications want is a mechanism. We say science is self-correcting, but it's hard to think of examples where we really walked all the way back on a, on a finding. On a finding, yeah. Um, and that should happen. In a healthy science, that should happen. Yeah. And we're not seeing it happening very much until recently.
0: Well, yeah. Part, part of that is because we have weak theories, but then we have weak mm-hmm. theories because we have bad measurement. Right, and we have bad, right. You know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it goes on yeah. and on and on. Yeah. It's, it's a mess. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but, but so so in my training, in my measurement training with Lee Seacrest, mm-hmm. he drummed it in my head that direct replications were useless. Yeah. And here's why. So we had to read David Licken's old piece from like 1968, huh. uh, you know, where he lays out different kinds of replication.
1: Okay, I don't
0: know that one. Uh, it's a great paper and mm-hmm. it's really illuminating because here's what he said. Licken was a grumpy old guy, hmm. right? He's a grumpy old psychophysiologist. I, read, I think I read a book he wrote maybe tremor in the blood uh, about sure. about uh, lie detection which okay. is bullshit yeah. uh but the but the um the argument that he made was he didn't use conceptual replication mm-hmm. he, he used constructive was mm-hmm. his word constructive mm-hmm. replication and what he, he argued was that every finding contri- if it's if it's a legitimate science it contributes to a th- our understanding of a theory and a theory has a set of propositions it gets mm-hmm. very poparian right mm-hmm. in, in, in here at some point and he goes, what needs to be replicated is the proposition, mm-hmm. right? And so, what you don't want to do is depend on what some other jerk did, not jerk, mm. another, some other very <laughs> fine, wonderful person did in their study, because they might have done it a bad way. What you want to do is test the proposition. If the proposition, if you falsify so the proposition in a way that they didn't,
1: that would only work if there was consensus it. that you did it better than that. I know. So, I agree. Right. If you, I would rather, instead of a direct replication, you did a, an improvement on the original study. The problem is the original authors or their friends or people who like that original finding are not going to agree that you did an improvement. They're gonna say what you changed, if you fail to, to get the effect, what you changed made it worse. So right. if we could come to a consensus on what's an improvement and everybody agrees, yes, this is an even better test of the theory, then I would be all for changing right. the right. the design from the original to the replication. I think replication.
0: Licken would have argued that what we need to be arguing about is what the best test of the theory is.
1: But then we just devolve into he said, she said, and we never correct the record when there's a false positive. Maybe
0: the place where Licken and the sort of broader consensus of the movement agree is that the lowest rung... The, low, the the, the,
1: the mm-hmm. smallest hurdle yeah. is the direct replication. I think that really the disagreement is not about the value of direct replication. I think we all agree that it's a pretty pretty low bar. It's yeah. a matter of cynicism. I think those of us who are pushing for more direct replication think that we're worried that we won't even pass that low bar. Yeah. And so we think before we skip to extensions and nuance about the theory and boundary conditions and so on, let's make sure that these facts that we're incorporating into the theory are facts and are yeah. not false positives yeah
0: although you can make the the <laughs> the argument i think that licking and seacrest are even more cynical yeah they're like if you can't take the theory and right. make it happen with another right. clever design then the theory's bullshit i
1: agree but the the field doesn't share that Those consensus fe- yeah, right 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 so it, but i think we need to move towards better standards of what's high quality evidence so that if i don't do a direct application if i test the same theory but in a better way and, I, and it fails then it's Harder to dodge the conclusion that okay, well, that prediction was wrong, right, um, but right now there's not enough consensus on what makes one instantiation of the theory better than another, sure. and sure. so then people can choose whichever finding they want to believe
0: it's yeah it's it's uh, so this is part of why I some i don't know whether I'm like more or less grumpy about yeah. the state of psychology sometimes yeah, yeah. when I listen to you talk to right the,
1: i mean that cynicism is a complicated thing right i think in some ways i'm super cynical and in other ways i'm super idealistic yeah you have well i think
0: that the the history of movements of any kind mm -hmm. suggests that you have to be idealistic in order to to participate yeah and you're like the movement you're 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 one of the
1: i just want to go on record that i don't agree with a lot of the characterizations of me personally that you're making but I'll, I'll let that well, slide. Well, <laughs> that's, that's too bad.
0: No, I'm just kidding. No, you're right. Of course. Of course you're right. You're, I don't, I, I'm sort of joking when I say that you're the movement, but you're, to me, you're sort of one of the, the very nice, the, the sort of the, 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 bright lights of the movement. And I mean that um, in, the, in the, in a good way.
1: I just want to say that one of the, like maybe the biggest lesson I've learned from the movement is that people who get put on pedestals that's not a place you want to be. No. So it's, yeah. m- I get uncomfortable when people describe me like yesterday someone called me a big wig and <laughs> I know they mean it in a nice way, but to me, that's like my worst nightmare. Like I don't want to be yeah. in that position because I'm so far from perfect. And when people realize that I don't want that to be a big fall, right? I want to be like pretty close to the bottom so that when people see all my flaws and see that I'm not perfect, I'm not falling from a great height. <laughs> I
0: bet that also you want you're disposed to affiliate.
1: Yeah. I mean one of the things it was interesting, I'm curious what you think about this, but one of the reasons I like doing a podcast and we talked about this is that I like deflected attention. So I like in this role actually in sips, like technically I'm the chair of the executive committee, but Brian Nozick and Alexa are kind of the MCs of the conference right. because I I'm not good at like having the spotlight directly yeah. on me, but I won't deny that I like to have an influence and so on. But sure. I like that to be a little bit more indirect or deflected. So the nice thing about the podcast is that you can record it and imagine that nobody's going to listen. <laughs> <And> <laughs> right. That's what I have yeah. to do when I'm recording yeah. a podcast.
0: Okay. Well, that's interesting. And maybe this is part of why uh, you, when, when I saw you at APS last May, I asked you about editing SPPS and you were like, I love it. And I was like, I you're crazy. I love editing. I can't stand it. Yeah. I can't stand I can't take the pressure. Yeah. I like being up on stage, man. I can be up sta- on stage all day long. I don't care. Yeah. Uh, I like interacting it's with the audience. It's good that
1: different people like different parts of the job because yeah. otherwise nobody would want to do certain things. Man,
0: but. I just feel so responsible for weighty yeah. decisions, and that's where I crack. Yeah. Because oh, my t- other high it. score, my other high score on personality, is neuroticism. Yeah.
1: I think I'm pretty low on most facets of narcissism, And I think that does help for editing. I mean, I don't want to sound like I don't care. I do. It does weigh on me that I'm making decisions that affect people's livelihoods and lives. Yeah. Um, But I think that I can, that doesn't stop me from being able to make a decision knowing, you know, I've been on the receiving end of bad decisions and sure. mistakes and so on. So knowing that I'm, I will sometimes make some mistakes and I don't take that lightly, but I can understand how that's paralyzing for some people yep. and for some reason that doesn't paralyze me, but it is on my mind.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, so what about pre-registration? What is this? I, can, can I, here's my confession part really? Okay. Well, my, I guess first confession is I'm still not 100% convinced about direct re- replication, but I like that we found that low bar. Yeah. We agree yeah. that it's the low bar yeah. lowest <laughs> bar. Yeah. Um, but uh, pre-registration. hmm. Haven't done it. Yeah. So, what does it entail?
1: So, I haven't done it either, except for like for small side projects that I'm not the main person on. I see. So, you. I've been involved in projects that have a pre-production. So, you haven't, haven't suffered led. through the. So I haven't collected the, the new pain. data in like 5 years because really? yeah because our data are longitudinal multi-method measurement burst designs with behavioral observation and self-reports and peer reports and life narrative interviews and so we're still coding all of that from our last study wow. and we will be for a while. So you've
0: got you've got longitudinal data. That makes pre-registration tricky, right?
1: Yeah, and we don't have hypotheses. We don't have predictions. So you don't have I predictions? still think we if I could go back in time, I would pre-register my last study as an exploratory study and just say, this is what we're going to measure. We have some research questions, open-ended research questions. we have a lot that we haven't thought of yet that we will you know use the data to answer thing new, new ideas that come up. Huh. Um, but I think that's still worth pre-registering because it ties our hands. It makes it so that we can't later claim that we predicted something. Um, so the, a
0: lot to unpack there yeah but the, but let's, let's what, so what is what is? pre-registration anyway.
1: So pre-registration is if you want to later be able to get credit for having had a specific prediction, then you should document it, right? Like we know about motivated reasoning. We know that there's retrospective biases. We know that there's motivated biases, um, people confirmation bias, etc. So If you later want to write up a paper and say, we expected this before we ever saw the data, and then we tested it, we had one key test, which is really what the conditions that need to be met if you're using p values in the Neiman Pearson way. So, if you want to be able to interpret your results with as much confidence as you would if you had a key test of a key hypothesis that you made ahead of time, then show us that. The way, you know, it's hard to ask people to believe that to trust you that that was our plan all along because of motivated reasoning and, and retrospective biases because we're human it's so easy to think that we had a prediction all along when we didn't you play around with the data you see something interesting and then you can reconstruct as if that was the goal of the study all along i've seen it happen with collaborators where we i have a paper where my collaborator and i disagree about whether we predicted the finding ahead of time or not like we have, we both actually we that's have some, that's vivid memories m- of where we were sitting. Territory right there. Yeah, but that's what so much of the social psych literature is about. So I well,
0: so so for example, you know, I have this these studies with hand holding, right? And you know, I put people in a threat of shock, and I have them either hold hands with a loved one or not. Mm-hmm. And the prediction was that they would be less distressed when they're holding hands. Mm-hmm.
1: But let's say you test that and it doesn't quite come out and then you think, oh, yeah, but there might be gender differences or it might matter how close their close one is. And so you add that as a moderator or whatever. Yeah. And then, you know, it's hard to remember how many different things you tried if the first one didn't work out. And to adjust, first of all, we're terrible at our intuitions about probability. So how do we adjust our confidence in the effect depending on how many ways we had to try it? How do we remember how many things we tried before we landed on the one that stuck? And how do we know whether we would have thought a priori that was an obvious moderator or not? I don't trust our retrospective. We're really good at storytelling and at coming up with a good reason why that should be a moderator, why it wouldn't have worked without controlling for this variable and so on.
0: I'm going to have my mom call you. (laughs) she she needs to hear about this because because when I when I first came out with that she's gonna hate that I'm telling this story Mm -hmm. publicly but when that first handling study came out you know it got press and so I called my mom and I was like hey I'm in the paper and she's like what and then she's reading it and reading it reading she's like so so you found that when you're holding hands with someone they're less distressed when you put them under threat of shock I was like yeah she goes I could this have told you, you that. got that in yeah. the New York times yeah, right, right. why yeah. why didn't you call me? Right, right. I could have saved so much money <laughs> yeah, <right>. this was
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean I think that I think your point that the cases where it's just the main effect and there's really only one way to test it, and so on, then I'm less worried about it's degrees of example yeah but uh, many effects that we read about in the literature are more complicated like interaction effects or mediations or mediated moderations and so on and And intuitively i I
0: never trust them as much
1: yeah and i think the reason is that we know there probably were a lot of ways to test that there probably were a lot of different variations on the hypothesis that all are theoretically plausible and easy to come up with a rationalization for and some of them must be true. So it's not the case that just because it was slightly post hoc that it's not true, but our confidence should be less than if that was exactly the prediction that the researcher made ahead of time. And
0: uh, so it's, does it get tricky though? I mean, it's so a pre-registration is, I don't even know exactly what it is in terms of what the documentation looks like. Yeah, so but, but how does it, I mean, go ahead. There's different go degrees, ahead. right? So you yeah. could
1: pre-register just the methods and not say that, not have any predictions or analysis plan. In that case, then your analyses will be necessarily will be exploratory, and you'll have to interpret them with more uncertainty, more, yeah. more caution. Um, or you can pre-register not just your design and procedures and materials, but also your key research question or hypotheses and how you're going to test them. And you could go as far as to write the code that you're going to run when the data are in. And that doesn't mean that's all you can do, but that's that's the part that you can then claim is confirmatory to that, it's and you can got, have more it's confidence in some vault in it. somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then anything else you do, you just have less confidence in than the stuff that you pre-registered.
0: So what is the... What is the... Is there murky territory here? I mean, so I'm thinking about when I've I've written a bunch of grants mm-hmm. and grants always make you state hypotheses and data mm-hmm. analysis mm-hmm. plans and, and all of that stuff. Does that count?
1: Um, it We could... We could decide that that counts. I think there's would a lot be? to think about. Um, I would... Yeah, I think I would be okay with that if people wanted to count that as a pre-registration. Yeah, I'd have to think more about it. But I think it's not too far from what we mean by pre-registration.
0: I'm I'm, I'm fishing for some help here because I might be able to claim uh, some pre-registrations.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I think our field needs to come to a consensus about that. And I don't know enough about what level of detail goes into those kinds right. of things. I know... My own case, but my research is pretty far from the mainstream in terms of design and so on. So I don't know what's typical. I don't know how detailed those plans are. I don't know how much, you know, often there's a pretty big time lag between when yeah. you write the grant proposal and when you actually do the study. So it's possible right. that the design changes quite a bit, the predictions change quite a bit, et cetera. But if they don't change, I don't I don't see I'd have to think more about it, but I think it could yeah. count as a kind of, pre- maybe depending on, and and like I said, pre-registration is kind of on a spectrum. So depending on the level of detail and the level of precision in the, the description, it could be a more constraining pre-registration, in which case you can make really strong conclusions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a more fluid pre-registration, in which case it's a little bit better than no pre-registration, but maybe not as far. It doesn't right. give you as much confidence as a right. really detailed one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I've posted sort of uh, half-jokingly on Facebook. I was like, hey, what if I put in my paper that I did just the exact analysis plan that I put in my grant. because
1: mm-hmm. Cuz I've or never seen even, anyone do that before. Even the exact analysis plan that you used in your past paper. I think that yeah, anything well, that like that. actually constrains researcher degrees of freedom it helps and I don't know where the line is between something that helps and constrains it a little bit versus a full blown pre registration right. but I and think it's probably
0: going to vary from domain to domain. Yeah. In a and I mean domain.
1: and it's hard because sometimes in some domains it is legitimate for the the decision rules about analyses to change from study to study. Sometimes you, out, you exclude outliers based on three standard deviations, sometimes it's two and a half, but it's, it could be a principled change. Oh, absolutely. And so that's where pre-registration comes in handy is then you can say, no, 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 I know it looks weird because in study one, we excluded them based on three standard deviations. In study two, is two and a half, but we pre-registered it. It wasn't a post hoc decision. It wasn't data yeah, dependent. It's tricky though. I mean, I,
0: I totally, first of all, I totally see conceptually the advantage. Part of my resistance is that i just don't want to do another goddamn thing you yeah. know i don't want to do another so thing liz dunn gave it's a hard. great
1: talk at sbsb and she made a youtube video of it so yeah. she had i think some reservations of her education. i think probably similar ones yeah and it's then a she pain tried, in the tried the ass. it
0: i mean conceptually it's t- totally I, on board yeah
1: yeah so i think it's less a pain in the ass than you might think and uh-huh. that you save time later on and so I, again i like I'm probably not the best person to talk about it because I haven't done it. What we've done is because we use existing data that we collected six years ago and we're still coding and so on. We can't do a data independent analysis plan because we know too much about our data, so we still register our planned analyses, but we don't claim that they're pre registered We don't claim that it's independent of the data, but even that it does it's hard. We have to like pin ourselves down to say, well there are like six different ways we could test our research question. And to have to decide ahead of time, which one do we think is actually the best test? Like if we had to pick one, which is like the best test and the other one, and which one are we committing to believing more? Yeah. We're going to like kind of tie ourselves to the mast a little bit and not give ourselves complete wiggle room. We still have some wiggle room because we'll still say, well, okay, we're going to, this is our key test, but we also think it's worth trying it these four other ways. Yeah. But if the key one doesn't come out, then we're at least blocking ourselves from making really strong claims. Um, Interesting. And, and that, it slows us down at that point in the process, but it speeds it up later on the interpretation side. We don't spend hours going around and around and debating about. Well, no, I did. I would have predicted. I totally would have guessed that this would work better than that, and so on. Because we had to pin ourselves down earlier on.
0: Well, this is really interesting in light of something that you said that that I didn't expect a little while ago, and I'm and I just want to bring it up. We're, we're running out of time, so I don't want to make you late. But I, want, you said that you that you have this longitudinal study mm-hmm. and that you don't have any hypotheses. Mm-hmm. And can you talk more about that? I mean, I didn't know that... I, okay, let me just... First of all, I'm not pouncing or anything. No, no, I'm not, no, no. i no, not I don't feel... I, 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 like I just, I guess, philosophically where I come from intellectually is that that's not possible.
1: Right. So I did have a research question and it's in my NSF grant proposal. And it's that we want to look at whether people have self-knowledge, not just of their average trait level, but what we were talking about before was will the within person fluctuations. Mm-hmm. Do mm-hmm. people know how much they fluctuate and when they, fl- when they're particularly right. high or right. low, right. Right. both on a short term scale. So we have like one or two weeks of intensive within person data, self-report on ESM and observer ratings using the ear. So for a week, Every year we recorded people intensively and we got their self report and their actual behavior. Cool. And then we did it again a year later and a year later, although we had a ton of attrition. Oh, um, that sucks. Sorry. And we have self, yeah, we, I did not know how to do longitudinal. Yeah. yeah, it's um, hard. So uh, the kind of broad research question driving the study design was are people accurate about their state personality, how they're fluctuating from one situation to another, one day to the next, and also one year to the next? Do they know how their personality has shifted over time? What about peer reports? are those more accurate, less accurate, et cetera so it's kind of open ended questions, but when you're gonna design a study like that, you're gonna also throw in everything but the kitchen sink right like so we had a collaborator who's interested in conscientiousness and ah, and right. school achievement and so on so we have measures of that and we have we threw in measures of emotion regulation but does, the, and, but does
0: your collaborator who threw in the conscientiousness measures have a hypothesis why did they choose the conscientiousness measure?
1: I think that a lot of like Personality researchers have these kind of open-ended questions of how does this change over time, or uh-huh. what predicts changes in conscientiousness. So you they're just interested in conscientiousness, understanding the, yeah. but they don't know
0: what's going to happen with conscientiousness. Yeah, I don't want to time. speak for him. I don't know. Maybe okay. he had more specifics. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to put no. Him on but the spot I think either.
1: it's very common, at least in personality research, to have a, a question, be interested in a construct or the relationship between two constructs, or how a construct develops over time, and be open to any. You know, start with a very kind of bottom-up approach of, like, what correlates with this, what predicts this, and then dig deeper into it.
0: Um, So do do you have an expectation for what sources of... Variation in personality measurement are going to be primary or secondary, or how they're going to manifest and things like that. What do you mean? Oh, well, I mean, I'm trying to think about your. So you've got, you know, self-report. Mm-hmm. You've got other mm-hmm. report. You've got situational mm-hmm. measures. You've got all these kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, and, and you've got you're very impressed with the the idea of situations as having as sort of drawing for different personality traits. Mm-hmm. So what do you expect to happen? I, I think, mean, I mean yeah, maybe yeah. not specifically, but do you have? I, I, expectations? Of it. And, we, we, and wouldn't that count as hypothesis? I feel like my answer to those
1: questions is super unsatisfying to people. Like people often want to pin a person down and say, well, you're for do, self-reports yeah. or against self-reports. And I'm like completely in the middle. Like I think yeah. that in theory, I think there's a lot of blind spots in people's self views. And I think there's yes. a lot they don't know about themselves. And if we could measure behavior really, really well, we would find things that people don't know about themselves and predict their future behavior and their outcomes better with behavior than with their self-views sometimes. Yeah, But the measurement of behavior is so much messier and so much harder than the measurement of self-reports. We have such good self-report measures. They're reliable. They're, they've been validated, et cetera. So they end up predicting things better than the behavior measures. So if, you, if I had to bet money on what's going to be most powerful, most predictive, et cetera, most valid and reliable, it's the self-reports and maybe the peer reports would be up there with them. But if what what do I really believe is who a person really is, I would probably go with behavior if I could get a direct sure. pipeline and measure sure, it really sure. well. But just it's follow so them hard around with, with yeah. a multimodal yeah. measurement system. Right. But, yeah. and we have I mean we have forty five coders in our lab coding behavior we Oh, we triple shit. coded everything and that's not reliable enough. So we're adding fourth, fifth and Holy sixth coders shit. and our reliabilities are still going to be below the standards for reliability.
0: Like what? Like 0.4? Yeah. 0. Like 5.
1: They're 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5 with three coders. What they sometimes call acceptable. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and to a personality psychologist who uses questionnaire measures, that's disgusting. Like that makes me want to puke. Oh yeah, yeah. No, um, it's not acceptable to no, me. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know, but it's that or nothing with with real world behavior.
0: Well, I've been coding behavior for freaking almost God. I started in '91. Yeah. I've been coding behavior for a long time. I feel your pain. Yeah, yeah. That's that part sucks. Yeah. Uh, reliabilities. One of the things that that I was up against when a long time ago with frontal EEG asymmetry was I had this suspicion that one of the problems was the measurement conditions. That's why mm-hmm. it wasn't replicating. Mm-hmm. This turned out to be right. Mm-hmm. That that measuring at rest mm-hmm. was like an uncontrolled experimental condition. Mm-hmm. Like there wasn't enough situation in there yeah, yeah, to, to draw out consistent. the personality. Yeah, so it was just like people were right. just all over the place. So now
1: I can ignore my minus three standard deviation score. <laughs> <over the> <laughs> maybe so. Maybe so.
0: It could have been, well, it could have been the situation it could yeah, have been yeah, your friend's fault. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> right? I'm going to blame a lot. Of them. <laughs> <laughs> but so the, the flip side of that was that, you know, if we impose some kind of emotional situation, we'll We'll draw out mm-hmm. the, the response to the situation, but yeah. we'll also, within that situation, we'll get people's trait yeah. because we'll get yeah, their yeah, sort of trait yeah. capability for response. But this set up two different possibilities, mm-hmm. right? Maybe one possibility is that resting is the best measurement condition, mm-hmm. and the other possibility is a state challenge is the mm-hmm. best measurement condition right. for mm-hmm. getting trait variants. Yeah. And I drew, I mean, I think in those kinds of situations where you really don't really know, one of my mm. favorite things to do is to draw from the sort of the the plat strong mm-hmm. inference yeah. kind of thing where you, where you, you have multiple yeah. working hypotheses yes. and you sort of pre-register, if you will, yeah. You know, if it goes this way, right. it's because of that. And right. if it goes this way, it's because yeah. of that. And yeah. then we just sort of do, let the Roman gladiator, yeah. you know, contest begin.
1: Yeah, and actually this this study that I did that I had an NSF grant for, the first draft of the NSF grant, the first three versions that got rejected, had... Uh, competing hypotheses I said well here are theories that would predict that the self would be more accurate than others that we would per- perceive the fluctuations in our own personality more accurately than our peers would and here's theories that would predict that actually we're bad at perceiving yeah. these things in ourselves and peers would be better and the reviewers and the program director came back and said you have to make a directional prediction just and a thought, single directional wouldn't it, prediction wouldn't it be better to oh, fund a project that either way it would be interesting than to fund a project where I have to make a it yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, wrong, I'm gonna say wrong. to the world that
0: yeah. that that comment was bullshit Yeah, so that was a long time ago come and on. I don't I hope about? that we've
1: we've evolved since then but i think i literally flipped a coin because i didn't have an intuition which one which way it would come out so i don't remember what i predicted no the best so in this possible case because i i made up my my prediction because i didn't have i had to <laughs> oh, pick one way or the other
0: well but, well you'll have to cross that bridge when you get to yeah, it yeah, i guess yeah. <laughs> so pre-registrate have you have you done uh have you published any uh direct replications at this point
1: no i've uh i'm a one of the many You're many co-authors the, the, on the triple R, uh, yeah, that hasn't come out yet, actually. So no, yeah, yeah. I haven't,
0: I haven't, I don't think I've published uh, direct. I mean, you know, so many times I've included a resting condition mm-hmm. in EEG yeah. asymmetry stuff over the years that I guess that counts every right. time, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, yeah. even though sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah,
1: yeah. But that, that really was an interesting
0: cool. conversation. So my conversation with John Allen is really interesting. I'd almost love to send it to you and see what your yeah, take be is. Curious. Because uh, we talk about how insane we were to keep going yeah. with that measure <laughs> yeah. for as long as we did, because we had so many failures to replicate, yeah. and we published them. Yeah. So this is interesting. This is the other thing about... This is John Cassiopo, I don't know if you follow yeah. his work much, but he, mm-hmm. for a while, he was editor-in-chief of the journal Psychophysiology, mm-hmm. and he made it really plain. This was like mm-hmm. 1996. Mm-hmm. He goes... Send me your failures to replicate. Cool, and and yeah. so we did. Yeah. John Allen did, I should yeah. say. I shouldn't take the credit for it. He published a big, high-powered paper mm-hmm. of frontal EJ asymmetry mm-hmm. that was all a failure to replicate. Yeah, and it caused a firestorm. And then mm-hmm. and then a guy named Dirk Hageman in in Germany did the same thing. And mm-hmm. then and then we were just people were failing to replicate yeah, yeah. a bunch, not yeah. just a little bit. I mean, yeah. it's sort of. I mean, I don't want to go too far down this road because it's a whole other set of things, but it sort of brings to mind this sort of Amy Cuddy uh, controversy because there weren't just a single or two Mm -hmm. or three. There Mm -hmm. were several failures. And it was at that point that we wrote our big R01 that said, okay, we're going to get hundreds of subjects. We're going to try and figure this out. And we kind of did. But but the period of time where there was this turmoil around that measure was like almost 10 years. Yeah,
1: I mean, and I think that I know this is very idealistic and naive, and I know that humans are more complicated than this, but the people who were the first like let's say you originally published a s- successful you know frontal asymmetry study, and then this whole debate comes up about whether it's real whether it's replicable, you should be flattered that that many people want to spend that much time and attention trying to figure out if this effect is real or not yeah that, that yeah. suggests it's important interesting and that yeah yeah right right right, right, so I think a healthy science is one where we've identified some really key problems or questions that the field is committed to answering and then we engage in a vigorous you know debate and adversarial collaborations and try to get to the bottom of it and it's not personal but i know we're human i know we get invested in things but that's what i would like science to look like and it sounds like some sub areas of psychology have achieved that and i just want that to be the case across the board
0: well i can't think of a better way to underline (laughs) your space in our broader scientific world right now so (laughs) Thanks, Samin. That was awesome. It's been fun. Okay. That's it, everybody. No more of that. For now, anyways. Thanks to Samin Vizier for coming over to my place and letting me record a conversation. She was the first... I think, I think actually she's the only person I've ever interviewed at my actual home here in Charlottesville, Virginia. She was in town for the annual meeting of SIPS, which is, again, the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science. You can uh, you can check out more about SIPS at improvingpsych.org.org as they sometimes say on the radio, and see, you know, for yourself all the... All the various things that they are up to, um, you know. It turns out that uh, that this episode is going to wrap up 2017 for all of us here at Circle of Willis. This is our last episode of the year, which you know, t- 2017 was. Uh, you know what? I don't. I just. I don't want to complain right now. I just. I don't. I had this whole thing here. I was going to complain, and I just don't want to do it. This episode, I'm feeling I, I I'm feeling inspired to do something other than just complain, and uh, and I don't know what that is right now. I don't know what that's going to be, what that's going to look like. Maybe it's, you know, you know my friend, my friend Andrew Sneathern is running for Congress right now for the House, for uh, Virginia's fifth district. Maybe it's maybe that's the sort of thing we all ought to be doing right now or supporting at least. Right. Right. Let's I mean, you know, resistance. Maybe maybe let's just vote this year. How about that? Let's just try to try to fix a few things around here in 2018. Anyway, happy new year, everyone. Let's not succumb. Let's not do that. Let's keep, we got to keep going. Okay? All right? Folks, the music on Circle of Willis is written by Tom Stopher and Gene Ruley and performed by their band, The New Drakes. For information on how to purchase their music, check the About page at CircleOfWillis.com. Don't forget that Circle of Willis is brought to you by VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship, both at the University of Virginia. And, uh, and that Circle of Willis is a member of the Teej FM network. You can find out more about that at teej.fm. If you like this podcast, how about giving us a little review at iTunes, letting us know how we're doing. It's super easy. Send us a, an email if you have to, if you want to, by uh, going to circleofwillispodcast.com and clicking on the contact. Tab. In any case, I'll see you all at episode nine, where I talk with psychologist, entrepreneur, and good old friend Hal Movius of Movius Consulting about the science, bringing science into the private sector, and using science to inform how we negotiate uh, with others. It's one of the most unpleasant experiences anyone can have as a negotiation and Hal's been coaching people on how to do that for a long time until then, bye bye